Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. That was awesome having Pastor Ray speak the last three weekends, was it not, on Israel? I thought he did such an incredible job. I was taking copious amounts of notes even though I had his notes. Because um, something's different about reading the notes and then taking your own, right? But uh, took lots of notes, and I loved how he navigated bringing us through the past, Israel in Scripture, God's plan uh, there, and then also in the present or the recent history in the present, and then looking prophetically towards what does the Bible say is, is, is God's plan for Israel in the future. And I thought that was really, really good. It left me asking the question that Jesus kind of poses to us also in, uh, right after the, all of the discourse, are we going to stay awake and will we be ready? We have a responsibility, right? There's a response, and, uh, and that is ultimately found in the Great Commission and the Great Command. Are we going to be busy doing the Master's work? So today I want to um, take one more step on this mini-series before going back into the grand story, uh, although maybe we won't have time next week also because of baptisms, which is okay. Um, but I wanted to just um, cap it all off. I know Pastor Ray went through past, present, and then future, but I wanted to look at Israel and the church quickly, just that relationship, because I've had questions and some ob objections, uh, not just in here, but some of them you'll be seeing online or, or in other areas, uh, but then also to look at how should we respond to what's happening in the Middle East right now? What's the Christian response, or, or better yet, what's the biblical response? And I think that's important that we, that we get that, because human nature is to pendulum. So I know we're talking about Israel lots, and, I, and I'll just qualify this. Why does this matter? Uh, something, a quote that I've really appreciated from Chuck Colson, that is, good ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. And I've really spent a lot of time just thinking about that, but there's a lot of truth in that. There, it is true, good ideas do have consequences, and there is cost to most things. But bad ideas have victims. And things like replacement theology is a bad idea that has created victims. So I'm going to read you a quote, and I, I think we've read it here before, but I'm going to read it again anyhow, because it really helps you see, I mean, where this kind of idea kind of comes from. So I'll just read it, and then, and then you'll see who, it, who said it afterwards. Verily, a hopeless, wicked, venomous, and devilish thing is the existence of these Jews, who for 1,400 years have, have been and still are our pest, torment, and misfortune. They are just devils and nothing more. Know, Christian, that next to the devil thou hast not an enemy more cruel, more venomous, and violent than a true Jew. Their synagogues or churches should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread with dirt, so that no one may be able to see it, a, a cinder or a stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetrate the same things that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies. In brief, dear princes and lords, those of you who have Jews under your rule, if my counsel does not please you, find better advice so that you and we all can be rid of the unbearable devilish burden of the Jews. Do not grant them prote protection, safe conduct, or communion with us. Was that vile, what I just read? 
You know who said it? Martin Luther. Yeah. I don't know who said Martin Luther, but you bet. Yeah, there we go. You'd think Adolf Hitler. In the Nuremberg trials, criminal trials, they actually pointed to Luther's writings to justify a lot of what they did in Germany. Good ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Not everyone who believes replacement theology wants this. But bad ideas have victims. It grows and it leads to fruit. This is the type of fruit. So let's just take a look quickly. We'll step back. We've already seen Israel, God's plan in here. His purposes are not yet complete. His promises are forever because he's not just a promise maker. He's a promise what? Keeper. Thank you. Okay, so he's a promise keeper. So the first one we'll look at is Israel, the church, and the people of God. So who is the people of God? Well, the first point I won't spend lots of time on because Pastor Ray has really gotten us on this one and us in mentoring too. Uh, he's often asked us, who was the new covenant made to? Jews, Israel, that's who it was made to, right? And by extension, it was also given to us. We're extended. The, the invite is extended to us too. But it was given to them first. And that is important because if we start at the wrong starting point, it leads to the wrong conclusions. Right? If you realize it's given to the Jews, and then by extension to us, you, you realize, oh, so we're not replacing them. We're actually being invited in. That order matters. Okay? So Ezekiel 36 to 37. No, not to, not to 37. But, uh, I mean, that'd be long. I will take you from the nations, talking about Israel, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart, new spirit. Remove your heart of stone. Give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, the promised land. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. I love that. That you shall be my people, I will be your God, is repeated so many times in the Old Testament. You see how possessive God is, and I love that he's possessive. Because he also calls me his own, and he calls that to you too if you've given your life to him. Right? But he's possessive. But this promise was given to the Jews. In fact, it's very clear when you're reading it, he's talking to the Jews. I'll bring you back into the land. You'll be scattered. This has not already been fulfilled. Partially fulfilled. Do we have a new heart? Do we have a new spirit? Well, yes, but we aren't still all, we aren't all obeying and having the desires to obey. Our desire might be there, but we don't yet have the power. At some point when Jesus returns and the new covenant is, is fulfilled or completed, at that point, this promise will be complete. All right, so Pastor Ray already touched on that, so I'm just going to move on to the next one. And that is Paul refuted the idea of replacement theology. And this is part of the, the thing that baffles me about how it even exists in the first place because it, it, this isn't the first time it, it's come up, you know, in the last 200 years. This was coming up already then. When Christendom was just born, it was already coming up. Does the church now replace Israel? Well, let's look at how Paul speaks of this because much of Romans is dedicated to exactly this, talking about who are the people of God and what role does Israel have and what role does the church have? So we'll start with Romans 10, 1 to 13. And if I would have backed up, I have a lot of scripture in this message, and so I had to cut a lot more out. But you can just go and read Romans 9, read maybe all of Romans. But really focus on all of Romans, you know, at the end of Romans 9, right through to the end of Romans 11. And he's, he's solidly telling you the relationship of Israel, the church, 
and whether or not we replace them. Okay? Anyways. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, at this point, you might be saying, oh, there is no distinction, Jew and Greek. No distinction at all. Well, you have to know what he's talking about. Is he saying there's no distinction at all between any type of Jew or Greek, that they're, that they're the same people? No, he's not saying that. What he's talking about with distinction actually matters. And if we get that, we'll realize he's not saying there is no more Israel. Of course there's still Israel. Of course there still is. Galatians, he'll give us a bit of, a bit of context. And this is, it'll show us why it's important what we think about what is the distinction he's talking about. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You see that repeated. That was the same thing in Romans, right? Neither Jew nor Greek, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's, oh, I also missed, there's no slave or free. And if you're Christ, then you are also Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What Paul is talking about is salvation only. He's not saying that all of the promises to the Jews now don't matter. He's not saying that. He's actually very clear what he is saying. He's saying we're all saved the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. But this isn't a new idea. Because they were already having to refute this, right? Because the people of Israel were saying, well, they're, they're God's people by birth. And already before this, they, that was being refuted, that it was actually through the circumcision. This is right in Deuteronomy. You had to circumcise your heart, not just your outer body, in order to be a true Jew, right? So this is not something new. Salvation in the Old Testament was always through what? Faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith has always been the thing that saves. And that's Paul's point here. His distinction, he's, he's saying, okay, to the Jews, you guys aren't special just because of your blood in the sense of you won't be saved. You're saved the same way that everybody else is. And to the Gentiles, you guys aren't replacing the Jews, but salvation is all also offered to you. So the distinction here is there's no distinction in how you are saved. We are all saved through faith. So it's important that we see it that way. Otherwise, people can use, and I've heard it, they use this verse, there is no male or fe female, to justify trans ideology. See, there's no male or female, no distinction. No, that's, that's not the distinction he's talking about. He's saying in Christ, whether you're male or female, doesn't matter in the sense of you're all saved the same way. Slave or free, no distinction. Jew or Greek, no distinction. All saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Making sense? Yeah, it's important that we just see this rightly. Otherwise, we get tripped up and people might throw a verse at you and you're like, oh, 
no Jew or Greek, I'm not sure how to respond to that. Now, you, now we know how to respond. Okay, next one. Romans 11, 1 to 5. I ask then, now this one couldn't be more clear. Has God rejected his people? Read the next part for me. By no means. Interesting. So I'll, I'll ask you guys again as though I'm Paul kind of asking you guys as though we're there. I ask you, has God rejected his people? By no means. By no means. He's already covered this. He's covering it like systematically. So clearly that it makes, it, it makes you wonder how we ever slipped into this in the first place. But the enemy wants to war against the people of Israel. Look at history, and I, I think maybe this has been said too, but, you know, human beings have hardly been able to agree on anything. It's, it's, it is true. But transcending worldviews and cultures and time, they have come to an agreement on one thing, and that is a hatred for the Jews. Look at the world right now, and they're gathering around anti-Semitism. It's gross and alarming. So, anyhow, we'll, we'll carry on. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So even Elijah appealed against Israel when they were being wicked. And, and it says, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I love that. So Paul clearly answers the charge. Has God rejected his people? The answer is no. No. Are they given a pass just because they're Israelites? The answer is also no. They, like us, become people of God through faith. Faith in Christ. Amen? That's how it works. Romans 11, we'll move on. Romans 11, 17 to 23. There we go. And this one I always love. But if some of the branches were broken off of Israel, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among them, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Interesting, interesting phrase, isn't it? Do not be arrogant towards the branches. You've been grafted in. You've, you've received a gift from God of grace. Absolutely, yes. But don't now thumb your nose to whom the, the gospel and the message of salvation came through. God's people, Israel. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Interesting instruction from Paul. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, referring to Israel, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And there's lots that we could say just sitting on this one passage about the, the relationship of Israel and the church. Yes, also on the idea of once saved, always saved, and whether or not we can reject the gift of salvation once we've received it. Um, this passage would seem to say we can. 
but that we can be grafted back in too. God has that power to graft us back in. And what I love is, not only does he have the power, according to scripture, he actually works towards doing so. He works towards giving each person the opportunity for salvation because his desire is that none should perish. So the amazing thing though in here, as it relates to Israel and the church, and who are the people of God, and that is, we Gentiles, we're all Gentiles, non-Jews, are given, by extension, the offer into salvation, the gift of grace in Christ Jesus our Lord, the, the gift of salvation. We're get, we get to be grafted in. Is that a hallelujah moment? That's a hallelujah moment. But that's just talking about salvation. We're not replacing Israel, but we do get to join God's people. And that's very important that we understand and we get this in the right way. So I'm going to continue on with the next passage. And like I said, we're going through a large swath of scripture, but I did cut out some of the verses, uh, not, not because they don't fit with what we're saying, just I'm trying to get as much in as we possibly can in our time. So Romans 11, 25 to 29. Did I put it up there already? No, I didn't. Now I did. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's that promise. In this way, there is coming a day, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, so there will be no more sin. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As, regard, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. So he's saying right now they are enemies of the gospel. They don't know the gospel. They're unbelievers. But then he goes in distinction. So does that mean we've replaced them? No, he covers it again here and he says, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, and then uh, Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, I love that short verse, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Paul couldn't be more clear. Those promises made, they're irrevocable. No one's going to undo the unconditional promises of God. No one. No one. God speaks and it is so. And I love that. And it needs to be that way. And I act, it bothers me that anyone would ever think differently because the implications of that. When I go into prayer, I mean, we just did this this last Tuesday, all staff prayer. We did um, a mini set free. And I think that was an hour and a half. And I'm pretty sure we were still doing inner healing and confession by the time we're done. That's the staff you guys have running this church. Uh, we were just getting into it. And it was amazing. Such a good time. But I had lots of stuff to confess. And the Lord was speaking to me on deep wounds that I'm still carrying that I didn't even know were there, but have been kind of hitting me stuff since summer. If God would break his promises to Israel, what hope would I ever have that he wouldn't break his promise to me? Because when I look in the mirror, I don't see someone who has it all put together. I see just a sinner, a broken man saved by grace. That's why we're passionate about things like replacement theology because the implication is God's a promise maker, but he's not a promise keeper. He made a promise to them, but because of their bad deeds, he broke it. Well, if that's true, what about my bad deeds? What about yours? 
Will he break his promise to you too? The answer is what? No. No, absolutely not. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He's a promise maker, all right. He is. He's bold to make the promises he makes. He is bold to make the prophetic promises he makes in here because they're so outlandish, some of them. You're like, that's impossible. He knows that. Because he's the sovereign, almighty God. He can make promises and keep promises. He doesn't need to break them. Jesus is coming back to sit on the throne of David. And when he comes back, the Jews will look upon the one they have pierced and they will mourn. And all of the living Jews at that moment will be saved. And I think that is going to be a glorious thing. I really hope that I get to be here for it. Wouldn't that be wonderful to, to witness that? The final, you know, crescendo, the end of the age and getting to witness one of the most fantastic prophetic promises that God has made in action, coming, coming to life right before our eyes. Just incredible. Anyway, so, Paul refuted replacement theology. New covenant was given to the Jews by extension to us. Hallelujah. And lastly, who are the people of God? All who put their faith in Jesus become the people of God, Jew and Gentile. That was Paul's main point. But that's not a new point. That's very important because that's a tripping point for some people. And I know I, I said it already, but I need to repeat it just because that's one of the main tripping points. The Old Testament is law. I've heard this again recently. The Old Testament was about law, and the New Testament is about grace and faith. That's not true. It's not supported in Scripture. Yes, the Israelites were given the Mosaic law. Absolutely yes, and it was conditional. Totally yes. And it helped them see, like the Abrahamic uh, covenant and the Mosaic and then the Davidic, all kind of paving the way for the new covenant, demonstrating to God's people, and by extension, all of us, that none of us were good in and of ourselves, that no matter how many privileges we were given, no matter how much truth we had, we didn't have it in us to, to save ourselves. That's the point. So it was always through faith that God saved the big change in the New Testament is, before they just had faith in Yahweh, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, they, knew, they, they saw the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. So now, now people are saved by the name of Jesus. And that's what Paul actually even talks about it in there. He says, in the former time, uh, God overlooked their ignorance because they didn't know Jesus' name. The method of salvation was the same. It's always faith. We're clear on that? Always faith, moving forward. Okay, so that's, who are the people of God? Those who have faith in Jesus. That's who the people of God are. All right. So, let's move on to, oh, there's one last thing I want to say about that. Think of it like uh, this, and maybe this is an imperfect picture, but the Bible uses this imagery too for us to understand. Uh, if, like, I'm a Dirksen. You guys know that, right? I hope so. You're like, someone's like, a Friesen? I thought you were a Friesen. No, not a Friesen. Although Friesens are great. I know a bunch of them. But uh, any Friesens in the house? They're all on this side. What's with that? Oh, there's a couple over here. Okay. Look, it's a family gathering over here. <laughs> Anyways, I'm a Dirksen. So we have four kids that my wife gave birth to. I was going to say we gave birth to. No, I really didn't do any of that. But uh, anyways, we had four kids. But if we adopted someone into our family, would they be a Dirksen now too? Yes. Would they be every bit as legitimate as my other kids? Yes. But they still aren't my blood. They were adopted in. Make sense? That is a great and biblical way to look at the people of God with Israel and Gentile. 
So once by faith, you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But once you have that faith, you are every bit as legitimate a person of God, child of God, and have a right to the kingdom of God as, as the Israelites if they put their faith and trust in Jesus too. Right? We're the same. Now I can move on. So with all of this in mind, how do we take you know, what we were learning with past, present, future, what we know is coming, and then what we know about Israel and the church, how do we now take this knowledge and apply it to the current crisis that we see in the Middle East? And so the first question I'm going to ask, and by the way, we're, going to, we're talking about one crisis here, but this, is, this exercise that we're going through is something I would encourage you do, to do in any type of conflict or crisis that you face. I did it lots during COVID. Asking myself, who side, who, the question, whose side am I on? That's a very important question. Whose side am I on? And that question we all ask, whether you're aware of it or not. It's, kind of, it's not a worldview question, but we all ask it because human beings are tribal by nature. By nature, you will have those people that are in your group and those people that are outside your group. That is just how human beings are. And by nature, those in your group, you will extend a ton of grace to, while it's very easy to demonize those that are outside your group. You know, the, you know the phrase, I've used it lots, we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions? Okay, by extension, we all do that with our communities too. So probably, <laughs> that is if you like being here, maybe you were dragged and you, don't, you didn't actually want to come here today. But if you like being here and you call this home, you probably feel that all the good people are here. <laughs> you guys are laughing. It's uncomfortable, right? I feel like that. I look around when we're worshiping. I'm looking at you guys. I'm like, yes, we got all the good people, right? And then we got to go out and win all the bad people and make them good like us. Uh, no. Okay, so that's going to be misquoted somewhere. I just know it. That is not what I'm saying. I'm being sarcastic online. Hi. <laughs> Anyways, that's human nature. Human nature does that. This happened in the split too, and we have to be very careful in that because then, then it's easy to think, well, the bad people left and the good people stayed. I was very quick to say, to remind myself and everyone else, bad people left, true. Bad people stayed. We're all bad. Guess how many people Jesus said were good? Oops, that's not it. There it is. No one is good except God alone. So God alone is one. So if you said one or zero, nobody, both are right. Only God is good. Now this is important. I like to, you know, again, before we get to how I respond over here, I like to go back to what's motivating my response over here. And this is a key thing that we have to understand because Scripture says, how many have sinned? All have sinned. Now, I would like to think my sin isn't as bad as your sin. Because that makes me feel better about me. That's human nature. We do that with our tribes. Yes, we all have mistakes. We can get there. But we would never do that. I've, I've seen this even when we talk about, you know, sexual ethics and the changing sexual ethic of our, of our day, LGBTQ, right? Oh, like, that's the worst sin. And I'm like, wait, how many people struggle with pornography within the church? That's the worst sin? Those are the same sins. 
See, we judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. So, I'm going to get to something. You might be saying, what's your point here, and how what does this have to do with Israel? <laughs> I'm getting to it. Bear with me. Sorry, I had two messages worth of notes here this morning, and I cut it down to one. So I'm just making sure my time is good, and I think I am. Have you got, by the way, any NFL fans in here? Anyone still professing to um, cheer for the Patriots? Oh, we got some loyalist fans over there. Notice my hand. Oh, there we go. I feel kind of guilty. My hand's not going up. You know, for years, people always talked about how, you know, Patriots are only, they had two decades of just ultimate dynasty. It's been so hard to watch football since they died. Uh, because how do you go from two decades of winning to just something else? I don't even want to talk about it. But anyways, people always said, the only reason they're winning is because they're cheating. And so I loved to point to this website called yourteamcheats.com. <laughs> I think it's maybe your team cheats too. <laughs> and anyways, it records all of the cheating from all the teams. And guess what you find out? Every team cheats. They all cheat. But then you show this, and what do we all do? Well, we, I show why the Patriots cheating is not responsible for their Super Bowls, and why your cheating is responsible probably for why your team isn't good, and, for why, and any wins they do have is because of the cheating. But, but do you see this? double standard that we have? Human nature, double standard. And the reason why I'm making this case is, if you understand we are naturally prone to this, you can put your heart on guard when there's crisis so that we don't end up responding out of our flesh and end up in sin, even if we're trying to stand for the right thing, but we stay connected to God and expressing his heart to others. So, we stand with Israel. We do. We just did, we commemorated Kristallnacht, um, and that was a good thing. We're, we're preaching on Israel. We love Israel. I mean, why wouldn't we love Israel? Think of what we got. Like our Bible, do you guys like your Bibles? Jewish book. Shock and awe, right? Like all of my favorite stories are from in here. They're of Jews. Our Messiah is Jewish. We get monotheism from Judaism. Like the best worldview ever came from them. Came from God and extension through his people because he used them as a vessel. Our understanding of the picture of who God is and how he relates to mankind through Israel. There's lots of things they've given us. The church also, not a Gentile creation, came through Jews. That's where it started. So do we stand with Israel? Absolutely, unequivocally. We always will. But, you know, and by the way, we also need to recognize standing for the Jews is also standing for the underdog. You know, like I said before, they've been so persecuted, now we see rising anti-Semitism in our own country. I've read two articles from Canada, which, you know, made you question, am I reading this in Canada? One, a Jewish school got shot at, like by a gun. And two, a Jewish school got evacuated with a, a bomb threat and a sign that says many Jews will die today. One in Toronto, one in Montreal. That's in our country. There have been marches with people chanting from the river to the sea, meaning wipe out all the Jews, genocide in between, wipe them out. That should bother us to the very core of our being. 
It should bother us. But does that mean that we think Israel is a righteous nation right now? No, they're not. I wish they were. In fact, that's why we keep praying for them to be. Righteous not by their own works, but righteous through putting their faith in Christ Jesus just like us. I want that to happen. But they're not righteous yet. Less than 1% are currently saved. That's sad, right? So what's my point in all of this? Well, many people are calling for the extermination of the Jews. That's heartbreaking all around the world. But you know what I'm also watching? People pendulum to the other side and doing the exact same thing but calling for the extermination of all of those in Gaza. Equally heartbreaking. Why should we desire that people perish? How callous of hearts would we have to have to not care about suffering of others, regardless of skin color or culture or where they were born? Our hearts should break when people suffer. We don't want to be like the culture. The culture does this, by the way. The culture demonizes. Have you noticed this? This is Marxism, and now in our postmodernism, we have people are all now categorized in groups. And the basic two categories are oppressors and oppressed. And this is somehow supposed to be part of the, the critical theory that's going to remove racism. And it's one of the most racist ideas I've ever heard. That you can look at someone based on the color of their skin or where they are born and tell if they are oppressors or oppressed is racist. That tells you nothing about their heart. So we sh our hearts should break when we see the anti-Semitism in the, in the world and, and it rising, and it is. It should break, but never to the point where we pendulum over and we propagate the same racist system but now against Muslims. Anyways, so let's carry on because I am in a round of time if I don't. I believe firmly that Israel has the right to defend themselves and to live in the land that God gave them. I mean, history supports that it was their land first, but even if it didn't, it's God's first. God owns everything. He can give it to whoever he wants. But Israel was around well before Palestinians were. And I'm not arguing that you know, Palestinians should be kicked out. But I will say it's interesting, when you're watching the rising anti-Semitism, and I'm watching like Queers for Palestine, or women's rights groups that are like championing pro-Palestine, do you know what the rights are of LGBTQ in Gaza? You look at Israel, Israel, do you know you can actually be an Arab and enter into the government in Israel? They have their own Arab party. You know that women are not allowed to be discriminated on by basis of gender? One of the awful places, like one of the massacres that happened, which is awful, I won't go into details, but happened at a rave. You know what a rave is? You won't see raves happening in a Muslim country. Now again, I look at this and I say, well, that's like, they have a lot of the same freedoms that we have. Yeah, they do. They do. Now, does that mean that everything they do is right? No, they're secular. 
They need to know Jesus. So yes, I believe they have the right to defend themselves. And yes, my heart is broken when I think about those that are dying in, in Gaza. Of course, my heart breaks over that. They're people, they're image bearers. They're image bearers. God made them just like you and me. So whose side are we on then? Well, that's a good question. Whose side are we on? Oh, I guess I could have hit that earlier. We'll go to Joshua. Joshua is by Jericho. So Moses has died. Joshua's now taken the people. They've gone over the river. They're going into the promised land. Okay, so just starting off here, Joshua's a Jew, right? Going into the promised land. He's obeying God. With that in mind, let's read. Joshua's by Jericho. He lifts up his eyes and looks. And behold, there's a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua goes to him and says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Interesting question. It's a very human question, isn't it? Whose side are you on? You on our side or are you on their side? And he said, no. I love that, no. I mean, the English here isn't even that great, but he just says, no, I like that. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua saw Jesus. He just didn't know his name. Like, just imagine that. You don't even realize you're looking at Jesus. Whose side are you on? I wonder if any of us have done this. Whose side are you on? Are you on our side? Are you on my side? Or are you on their side? And Jesus says, no. I'm on my side. Whose side are you on? Don't be tribal like the nations. You'll just end up in sin. We need to make sure we're on the Lord's side. And I love that. Jesus' response, take off your sandals from your feet. <laughs> the place where you're standing is holy. Even the ground upon which our Lord walks is holy. So holy that your, your shoes have to be taken off. That's our God. So, the question, whose side are you on? No. Whose side are we on, though? We need to, we need to ensure that we're, we're answering that correctly. Order matters. Do we stand for Israel? Absolutely we do. I do. I hope you do. Do we stand for the nations? Absolutely we should. We want all nations to be saved. We want Israel to be saved. I want everybody to know what I know. Everybody. But we must remain on God's side and reflect his heart in our response. And so if we're going to do that, we have to know what God's heart is. Otherwise, if you're not getting, and we talked about this with worldview, if your worldview is not just a, a matter of answering the right questions. Like I ask you, you know, you're, you're created in the image of what? God. And now that changes your life, that, that knowledge. Probably not. Unless you've taken the time to learn and to meditate on what that means. Right? So in the same way, how are we going to get God's heart? If you're not meditating on this word and finding out what God says, I will guarantee you something. You are getting the heart of the culture. 
It's being given to you every time you go on your phone, every time you open a newspaper, every time you go to work, go, into, go out there. It's being given in the way you think. It's everywhere. Okay, so God's heart for Israel and the nations. Let's look at that. First, a warning. So where do you get God's heart? Um, you get it on the news, right? <laughs> I'm being funny. That's funny. You can laugh. No, of course not. Yeah, of course not. Now, I, I'm, I, by the way, I spend a lot of time on the news. Not too much. I hope it's balanced. Maybe, never mind. I should never say I'm balanced. I'm not a balanced person. I don't know how to do anything with balance. I'm either in all the way and way too far, or I'm out all the way, way too far. Okay? So anyways, I spend a lot of time in the news, but I am very careful not to take my cues from the news. And I try not to be a conspiracy person. So take this with a grain of salt, what I say. When I read the news, I always read, this is what they want me to think and believe. I just read it that way, whether it's left or right. And yes, I will say the left news, I have a lot harder time reading. And the right news is easier, which means I guard myself even more so on the right news. Because they're saying things that I like to hear, that jive with the way I think. But I don't want to take my heart cues and my response cues from the news, regardless of who writes it. I get that from here. And I spend daily time in here and a good chunk of time in here. Trying to offset with memorization and study all of the junk I get from in the world. So, what does the Bible say? What is God's heart? Well, that's a good question. Heart for Israel, heart for the nations. Let's start in Genesis. It's right up there. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, how many families of the earth will be blessed? All. Okay, so who's he talking to at first? Israel. They're not Israel yet, but the people of God who become Israel. It's the same line. He's talking about a bloodline. I will bless those who bless you. And in you, in the bloodline, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right from the beginning, it's very important that you understand this. God's heart for the nations. It didn't start with God's heart for one people, people of David, people of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then everyone else, no, he didn't love. No, it was always for all people. Always. All. How many people? All. I know, I repeat myself. Okay, that's important. We need to understand that. We need to remember it. God's heart has always been for Israel and the nations, which means our heart needs to be for what? Israel and the nations. All nations. Exactly. Because we're image bearers, and our job is to reflect the glory of God on the earth. That's your job. That's my job. So God's heart, learning what his heart is in a matter, is paramount for me to do my job right. And failing to reflect God's glory is, by definition, sin. So this isn't just a trivial matter. This is a critical matter. Next. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure. Oh, maybe it says, but if it's a terrorist, I have pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is that what it says? But what if they're evil? That's what he's getting at, wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But look at his heart. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Let that sink in. Read the news and then read that and try to reconcile the conflict you feel inside. 
Because I read the news and I don't feel that. But then I'm like, Lord, change me. I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not even close to there. I'm petty. No amens from my wife. But I am. I get hurt easily. It's true. I see evil and I'm like, oh, justice. Just wipe them out. That is not God's heart. So that's the part of me that I crucify. Because my job is to reflect his heart, not my heart. His glory, not mine. Let's look at more of God's heart. Is he slow to fulfill his promises? As some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. He is patiently waiting and enduring suffering because his desire is that none should perish. Does my heart reflect that? Do I desire that none should perish? This is the foundation for which we learn how to respond in a current crisis. This doesn't sound like us versus them. It sounds like us for them. And I mean, that's the motto of Jesus. Me for them, Father. Me for them. My life for theirs. That's the Christian way. Matthew 5. And then he gets it really clear here. This isn't just his heart. Now he's telling us for our heart, just so you know. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. This is our response. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute. So our response. This is where I'll wrap things up for today. I'm not quite done yet, but this is where I'll wrap it up. Pray, love, stand for truth, and make disciples. You're like, that doesn't really tell me exactly what to do with Israel. I know, but yet it does. Pray, love, stand for truth, make disciples. Just practice those things. You practice those things. Watch how far God brings you in your life and how much your heart begins to reflect his. But if you miss step one, you won't get the other three right. Because whatever your version will end up being, if you don't start with connecting to the Father's heart, it's going to be some twisted perversion of the world and the culture that you're living in. That's the way things work. So we pray. Nothing reveals our true heart better than our prayer life, or lack thereof. You want to know if you struggle with unbelief? Look at your prayer life. You want to know where you're at in maturity? Look at your prayer life. You want to know what you believe about the sovereignty of God? Look at your prayer life. It'll tell you loads about yourself. G.I. Packer said it was probably the best, you know, metric he would use for knowing how well someone knew God or did not know God. <laughs> Just look at their prayer life. He was under the belief that even a quadriplegic, if you had breath in your lungs, you were here on purpose for purpose. Even a quadriplegic can pray. And he'd say, you get to pray your whole life. It's like... You're not doing a less than calling. You're doing the, the high calling. Being in the, in the house of God in prayer. So anyways, i got to get on to the point. So what do we pray for? Psalm 122 says, pray for the peace in Jerusalem. So we pray for Israel. Peace in Israel. We pray for their salvation. Absolutely we do. We've been doing it, I think, four or five. Well, since October 7th. We've done it every week since. 
Well, keep doing it. But we should pray for the civilians in Gaza right now. There are many who have lost their lives. You might say, but yeah, but that's because, that's because Hamas terrorists are using them as human shields. That's true. But that doesn't negate the fact that they're human beings. They're image bearers that are suffering. Right? Doesn't negate that. So our hearts should break. We should pray for them too. We should pray for humanitarian efforts. We should pray for Jesus to visit them personally. That he would send his spirit and he would reveal themselves. That he'd bring peace to those kids that are terrified. That he would save Palestinian and Jew alike. That's what we should pray for. We should pray against anti-Semitism. Yes, it's racism. But we should pray against all forms of racism, including demonizing Muslims. If we start doing that and saying, oh, Muslim bad, uh, how are we any different? Individuals do commit atrocities. Absolutely, yes. And people groups maybe sort of have. But you've got to be very careful with that people group thing and labels. The culture does that. Don't capitulate to that. We're not of the culture. We're of the kingdom of God. We do things his way. His way is our way. Amen? His way is our way. That's how it has to be. So how do we pray for Hamas? Do, do we pray for them? Yes. Absolutely, yes. Now, what do I pray for them? Well, I pray for justice. I do. I'll be honest. I pray for justice. That's one thing that I pray for. I think it's awful what happened. Awful. Absolutely awful. That the thing, I, I won't go into details again. I know I've done that already. But you already know the details that were done to 1,200 Israel civilians intentionally. Barbarism at a level I've never even heard of before. It's like worse than the worst kind of... Hollywood can't even make a horror movie that equals that. That's what happened. Then they took 250 captives into Gaza and started using their own civilians as human shields. Awful. Wickedness, evil. I pray for justice. But I also pray for their salvation. I pray that God would extend to them the same gift he did me because I also didn't deserve it. And I know some will say, isn't there a verse in the Bible that talks about there's certain sins and now you shouldn't even pray for that person? I'm not mature enough to make that decision. I love my enemies and I pray for those who persecute me, whether intentionally or from a distance. So we pray for them. I watched an ISIS fighter testimony, and I have shared this already, but I'll share it again. And in there, he just talked about how Isa had met him and forgiven him and how he felt clean. Felt clean, felt forgiven. Well, now let's take a look. ISIS, you're like, ISIS, Hamas is being called ISIS. Terrorist, bad, yes, that is bad. Evil, absolutely yes. But did you know, like, not, I'm not saying it justifies it, but get in their minds. They're, they're, they have a worldview just like we do. They see the problem with the world. They want salvation just like we do. And in his mind, there's no way, like a, a Muslim does not have assurance of salvation the way we do as Christians. We get the Holy Spirit. We get a guarantor that testifies to us that we know that I know that I'm saved. They don't have that. They don't know if they stand before Allah if he will say forgiven or condemned. They don't know. But there are certain things they can do to ensure that they will receive a favorable result. And one of them is acts of terrorism on infidels. Now, does that justify evil? 
No, everyone has a reason for the bad things they do. No reason will stand when we stand before God. But have a heart to understand that. The pain and torment that they're in, the deception that they're in, we should care. It should matter to us. It should motivate us to want to share truth with them. Now you might say, can you find that in the Bible, that we should actually pray for a terrorist? I can't find the word terrorist in the Bible, but let me give you an example of someone who did acts of terror. Anyone heard of Saul, who is called Paul? Anyone? Well, let's do a little lesson of who Paul is. Certain acts, do I have one, three up there? I do, yeah. And Saul approved of his execution, the first martyr, Stephen. Good name. And there arose, although I don't want his fate necessarily, but, uh, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, was Paul committing acts of terror on innocent people, yes or no? Yes. Let's look at more. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Like, he doesn't even sound like a good person here. Like, so he's not just, like, performing the deed. Like, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. As he went on his way, he approaches Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? Lord, stop there. Almost like he thinks he's doing the business of God. He does. That's why he went to the religious leaders, to get approval to kill Christians. To rip families apart. To drag them into prisons. To take away their jobs and income. To humiliate them. All to defend God. Does that sound familiar? That's what jihad is. I'm not saying it's the exact same, but that is what they think they're doing. They're doing God's work. Look at Jesus' mercy. And he answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He doesn't mince words. I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. Think about like the people that would have been involved. We talked about this, as, I think it's set free, which they just had. So if you went there, you maybe will hear it twice. But um, imagine like any believer in that day will have been affected by Paul to some way, shape, or form. He committed great acts of terror against the church, and he knew it. Look at this. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I can't change the past, but I'm here by the grace of God. Look what he says. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I love that. I don't deserve grace like this. But I am what I am. That's what I did. That's who I was. Such were some of you, but I'm not that person anymore but by the grace of God. And that's why he worked hard. He laid himself out so that God's grace wouldn't be in vain. And then even his work that he attributes back, but by the grace of God that is with me. And this is where we'll, this is where we'll end. 
Part of our problem in our polarizing responses is that we actually don't realize how desperate we are in need of saving. That's part of our problem because we judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. And truth be told, many of us don't actually think we're all that bad. I mean, I've joked with you guys before, if everyone would just treat me the way I want to, to be treated, I'd be a great person. Society runs like that. If everyone else would just do what I ask, if you would just be nicer to me, then I would be a good person. I'd never blow up. Paul understood that he was the least of the apostles. He understood that he was a sinner saved by grace. And it was because of that that motivated him. See, when you understand that you're a sinner, Jesus said, those who've been forgiven little, what? Do you remember? Love little. But those who've been forgiven much, love much. You see, when you realize that you were a sinner saved by grace, that you could not earn it, and not only could you not earn it, you did not. There's nothing you did to earn it. It was given by grace to you. And you begin to understand the love of God. You can receive that. And that's what motivates us to go out, to love God and love people. And that's what our response needs to be with Israel. And so we pray. We should. We pray for Israel. We pray for their salvation. We pray for peace. We pray for justice. But our hearts should break for the Palestinian and Muslim people as well. And we should pray for them to know truth. And then we should use our lives, like Paul, to determine to live in such a way that God's grace would not be in vain. And so I want to end on that. I want to pray for you guys. And if you want, you can just pray inside. But I'm going to pray right now and just, we're going to determine that we're going to live in such a way, by grace. Like Paul said, I work hard, yes, by the grace of God. Because even this you can't do on your own. Nothing you can do. There's no works that you can do that save you. But you can commit to allowing God to do those works through you and committing to do your best. Lord Jesus, we are sinners. I am a sinner. And maybe you're here and you've never actually received the gift of grace. Lord, today I recognize that no one can be saved by their works. No one. Not me. No one. So Lord, I ask you to forgive my sins, to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we confess with our mouth that you are Lord and we receive with humility and with gratitude the gift of salvation, the gift of grace. And Lord, today, as we look at what you have done for us, as we look at your heart for Israel, for the nations, Lord, we commit to you to do our best to live in such a way that your grace was not in vain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.